and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and it's number 171. And in spite of rare and beautiful sunny weather, it doesn't really feel that bright, and I'm afraid that I feel a bit of a rant coming on, and it's not my usual kind, because it's not got any attempts at humour for a change. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and last Wednesday, it was the day before my son's 10th birthday, and it was podcast as usual. And we were, dare I say it, starting to emerge from the lockdown. And then this. At the end of every podcast, I do always sign off by saying wherever in the world you may be. And that's because Dairy Reporter has a global audience on every continent and in many countries. So it always feels appropriate to try and include as many people as possible. Does make it a bit hard at times because when I mention spring, I'm totally aware of the fact that in the southern hemisphere it isn't spring. And also that if I make reference to someone famous, they may well not be that famous globally. But I do enjoy the fact that it's global and that I've travelled to so many countries and met people from literally all around the world. I'm sure there might be a couple of countries globally that I've not met someone from, but it's definitely very few. And you know what? We always find something in common. Yesterday, I wrote an article about the latest IPCC report, which basically said that no matter what we do now, even if we keep global warming under 1.5 degrees, there'll still be more natural disasters and it's still going to have an impact. I know it's a little bit depressing, but to me, it seems like it's a battle that we should all be fighting with everything that we've got, and we should be doing it together. And then you see what's going on in Ukraine, where the environment isn't even a consideration right now. And it's pretty sickening. The pictures and videos are sickening, and we don't all want or need to live in fear. Three or four years ago, I went on a trip to the Baltic States to do some articles there, if you've been around long enough to remember those videos that I created there. I did enjoy the trip very much, and on the way home, I stopped off in Ukraine for a while. And of course, a couple of days doesn't mean you know everything about the country, especially given how big it is and how many people live there. But I did really enjoy my time there. The people there were very welcoming and friendly, and Kiev was a very beautiful city. I don't speak Ukrainian, but they were very gracious when they spoke no English, and I spoke to them instead in Russian. I remember walking along a wall, a very, very long wall, with pictures of people who had died in the conflict in the east of the country in the past decade. And then leaving the train station was the longest train I have ever seen. And I've seen some pretty long trains in North America carrying goods. But this train was filled with military personnel leaving for the east, waving to their loved ones. So what's going on is clearly an absolute tragedy. It's hurting so many people, and I have to say that I've known a fair few Russians in my time too, and I hope that the Russian people in general aren't going to be tarnished by this, because if they were fully informed, they wouldn't be wanting this war either. There'll be thousands of ordinary Russians mourning loved ones lost in the conflict as well. Of course, it's not just Russia. There are other countries where human rights seem to be meaningless as well. And all the while, that climate clock is ticking. It just seems that here we are about a 100 years almost after the beginning of the Second World War, and we haven't come very far, have we? I sense history won't be looking back on this century very fondly, for a whole host of reasons, when we could have been uniting to make a better world. Anyway, that's my little mini rant over. 
and I don't really have much else to say this week. We did try to celebrate my son's birthday. I made some edible flags for the cake, which had so much sugar in them, even I couldn't eat them. Some flags looked like they were supposed to, easy ones like Sweden, the Netherlands, Switzerland. The maple leaf in the middle of the Canadian flag looked a bit like a red ace of spades from a pack of cards, and I rapidly gave up on cutting the shape of a star for some of the other flags. From a distance, it looked really good. It's just a shame that that distance was about a quarter of a mile. I also managed, although I'm not quite sure how, to get all of the videos from the ice cream show done, so those should be going up online over the next few days. I did have three interviews for the podcast this week, but I chose to hold one over to next week just in case I don't have enough, because you just never know. And it also dawned on me that everybody on the show, other than myself today, is originally from Ireland. So, who are those interviews, you may well ask? Well, we have conversations with Vicky Davis, Global Marketing Director, Performance Active and Medical Nutrition at Friesland Campina Ingredients, and Con O'Driscoll, Product Manager for Homogenizers at SPX Flow. And of course, we have a weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. And that means it's time for a quick recap of some of the headlines for articles we've had this week. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we had an in-depth article on the new IPCC climate change report, which has issued some pretty depressing and dire warnings, and we had an article on the effect of the war in Ukraine on dairy. A new Christian Hansen probiotic study points to food industry opportunities, Cult Food Science has invested in the South African precision fermentation company De Novo Dairy, who we featured on the podcast not that long ago. Or it could be that long ago, given how time flies. And we also had our monthly roundup of some of the dairy products launched in February around the world. There was another in-depth article this time on a new WHO and UNICEF report, which worryingly says more than half of parents and pregnant women are exposed to aggressive formula milk marketing globally. Emmy and Nestle are launching a climate protection project with their milk suppliers in Switzerland, and in the US the dairy checkoff is going to be collaborating with the Mayo Clinic. The Barcelona Packaging Hub has been created, and we had three financial statement articles this week on Danone, Elopac, and Parmigiano Reggiano. In the UK, retailer Morrison's has switched its own brand milk from plastic bottles to cartons. We had an interview on Nestle's new Outshine fruit and yogurt pouches, and DSM's methane-reducing food additive has received EU marketing approval. You can read all of these and more at DairyReporter.com. I should say that we do have that roundup of new products every month, and while I get lots of press releases, I know there are probably hundreds more launches around the world in dairy and dairy alternatives each month. So if you're listening to this and you do have something to share, please do send us the details and a photo. And so that brings us to the first of the interviews for this week, and it's with Friesland Campina Ingredients, which has released a new report, revealing five trends and developments it said are set to drive the evolution of the food, drinks, and supplement industries in 2022. 
The report, which is called Shaping the Future of Nutrition, has insights into the latest market and consumer research to help brands pinpoint areas for innovation and NPD in the active performance and medical nutrition markets. To tell us more is no stranger to the podcast, Vicky Davis, Global Marketing Director, Performance, Active and Medical Nutrition at Friesland Campina Ingredients. We're talking about the basically about the adult nutrition trends in the reports. I wonder if you could tell me where the information comes from for that. Yeah, sure. We're always looking at the latest trends in the outside world to make sure that we can bring the right type of information into our customers uh, so that they can innovate in the right way. So we look at external trend reports. We talk to our customers to see what they um, are doing. We also work closely with a number of research organizations such as Innova and FMCG Gurus. And we combine all of this then to bring the latest insights to our customers. All right. And do you have people throughout the world doing that or are they just all based in the Netherlands? Yeah, the the marketing teams based in the Netherlands, but working with the regional offices where we have communications people and salespeople in all the regions in the world. So could you give me an overview of the new Shaping the Future of Nutrition report? Yeah. Sure. It's our second report. So we were really happy to follow up the one that we did uh, last year, which looked at more the effects that the pandemic had had on performance and active nutrition uh, segments in the market. And that was focused more on how that had impacted people's ability to be more active or to take the time that they wanted to focus on themselves. And then this year, with the report this year, you see that there is quite a different picture emerging now. So you see that consumers see their health uh, more holistically and they want to improve their health, but also how they are feeling. Yeah, So their overall well-being and not just treat single issues. So that's what you see throughout the trend report. Then that we try to bring things together to make that a little bit clearer also for the people that we would work with. So it encompasses a huge range of consumer issues and we categorised it under a few things. So the concern that people have also for the planet now. So that's the number one. So that's the first trend. So planet first nutrition. Resilience in this what is now an ever-changing world. So every few months, the dynamic seems to change in uh, in what's happening globally. The future is flexitarian was the third one. And I could talk about each of them individually in a moment. Holistic health starts in the gut. And that's a really interesting area in general. And then last but not least, celebrating healthy ageing. So I think many companies are looking at this. How can they innovate around this area? And we wanted to put particular attention on it this year. As I get older, I don't know if it's is it celebrating healthy aging or enduring healthy aging. I'm not sure. Yeah, but that's the way you say it is how people are feeling about it. Oh, I'm getting older. I don't want to be getting older, but I am. How do I take care of myself? I don't want to buy something off the shelf that says, oh, yeah, for 50 plus or for 60 plus people. They want to feel that it's nutrition that's going to just help them be healthier as they're as they're going. But it doesn't have to be specifically for old people. Huh? So that's right. important <laughs> to recognize. Yep. So the actual trends, those five trends, I wonder if you could yeah. go into a little bit more of, of the five trends. Yeah. No, sure. I'd love to. So Planet First Nutrition is the first one that we touched upon. So so I start there. So we see that indeed everywhere, you know, consumers are taking a lot more care about how they approach sustainability or how they want companies to talk about what they're doing to save the planet or to help the planet, because we all know we're going to be here for a long time. 
and they're taking that even a step further than they used to. So actively changing their diets to more sustainable either food types, but also asking companies then to make sure that they deliver packaging or products in total that are better for the environment. Yeah. So I think also with the increasing purchase power that the average consumer is having, they're willing to spend a little bit more money on this as well to know that that is happening. And what they expect then, I think, from us, from the brand owners as well, then is that they will communicate well about the sustainability efforts that they are having. So that's a big trend. And it also links to what you will see in more communication from us coming this year from Freezing Campina Ingredients about our contributions in this area as well. The second one, then resilience. Here we are talking about physical and mental well-being. Yeah. So you see that people, especially after the effect that the pandemic has had. So we said both on people's health, but how they are looking at health, but then also the toll that this has taken on many people and mentally as well has been a lot. So this has been uh, widely recognised around the world. So people are looking at how can they recover and protect their future health and make sure that they are, are, are staying fit, both body and mind. And when you ask consumers and people what they want to focus on, health and wellness is their number one priority, right? now. When it comes to then innovating in this area, you see that because of the trend and because of the recognition of the consumers focus on this area, manufacturers are now really trying to figure out how to deliver functional products that can support resilience overall. And what that means in terms of the combinations of ingredients and solutions put together, I think will be very interesting because I expect that we will see products positioned to support both physical and mental well-being and strength uh, over time and claims are expected to increase in this area as well. The third one then, also a hot topic, so the future is flexitarian, we phrased it. So the protein market has really been undergoing a big shift in the past few years. Yeah, So people incorporating much more plant-based ingredients into their diets, but particularly protein, but you see it wider than that, um, in a bid to be more healthier for themselves as well. So we did sometimes get the question, uh, is it plant-based diets or is it flexitarian? Uh, Why do you choose to focus on the flexitarian part? Well, if you ask uh, consumers what they're doing in light of the pandemic and to help their overall health and well-being, one of the things is incorporating more plant-based foods into their diet. Yeah, This is just becoming much more a normalised way of eating now. So looking ahead, we expect that the flexitarianism yeah, will, will likely become kind of the status quo, because already now a quarter of consumers label themselves uh, as this. Yeah, So that's increasing year on year. The, the fourth one, holistic health starts in the gut. As I mentioned already, consumers are really looking at their body and their mind and how to improve both of those. And they're not treating issues in isolation anymore. So it's not like, OK, I want to just help this gut issue that I have or this cold that I have or, or their immunity. They want a kind of a solution for everything. And what we see is that the nutrition industry is really doing a lot more scientific research and shining a light on the benefits of health from the gut and the microbiome. So the healthy bacteria that you have uh, within your gut. And a lot of research has shown from many different groups and universities and that around the world that the connection between the gut and overall health is very, very strong. That's landing much more everywhere in the world. So everybody's becoming more aware of it. Huh? Whereas it used to be 10 years ago, just in the scientific community was aware of this and looking at it. Now, the average consumer also is much more aware of it. So two and three consumers do say that they recognise that gut health is the key to achieving overall well-being and therein lies a big opportunity for formulating uh, gut supporting um, 
ingredients and solutions uh, this year and beyond. And then finally, we touched on it, yeah. So the healthy aging, celebrating healthy aging. The global populations are growing, everybody's living longer um, and want to stay healthier for that as well. But what does that mean in terms of what we eat and drink and how we live? So moving forwards. So it, it's appealing for manufacturers to try to find out how to deliver that to the consumer in the right way. And there are some sensitivities around it, which we touched about. Yeah, we're getting older, but people don't want to be told you're getting older and you should eat this or should eat that. But people are taking a more proactive approach. So it's how do you innovate for them and deliver the right type of supporting uh, products in this phase of life? That's a little bit about each of the of the five ones that we think are really shaping nutrition this year and for the coming couple of years. You mentioned the fact that this was the second one of these reports and the first one, obviously, a year ago, the yeah. lockdown was quite tight and strict because we were in that first phase. And yeah. the second one, it's changed a little bit. We've got different variants and it looks like we might be emerging from hopefully all of these lockdowns. How has that affected the report? Yeah, it did affect it quite a bit because you see that the mindset of people is changing, which has an effect on the global trends. Huh? So I think this pandemic is one thing that yeah, in a way brought the world together. Huh? So usually you see huge differences around the world in regions about how people behave and that. But this is one thing that influenced how everybody was thinking and perceiving and having that impact on health and well-being and the thinking that people do and the consciousness that there is around um, how can I be more healthy and stay more healthy so that if something like this comes, I can deal with it. And so touching on the aspects of that, so overall health, well-being, the resilience part, because the impact that it had on, on mental health uh, around the world for people as well, has really, yeah, I think influenced then these trends that we've highlighted in this report. And we seem to be in the middle of, in the UK especially, but around the world as well, we seem to be in a bit of a perfect storm because we've had not just the pandemic but there's inflation there's issues over sustainability there's all kinds of things going on at the same time how can companies that you work with navigate what are difficult times for the end consumer yeah that's a really good question and and i fully agree with you it's a it, it is a perfect storm at the moment Ash. there's a lot of different things affecting uh the global dynamics. And this is confusing and difficult time for many, many consumers. I think when it comes to our industry and what people can do is support consumers in what they're searching for, which is really they want authenticity, they want transparency from companies. So what are you doing? How can you help me to achieve my goals? So now we talk about um, health and well-being and, and supporting their lifestyle goals, but doing this and communicating very clearly and honestly. Yeah. So I think one good example is um, is sustainability. So that's a key issue for many people. 65% of consumers think that nutrition brands should do more to protect the planet. So that's a clear call to action uh, that we need to step up and do that and show what's being done. And we live in a time of uh, increasing scepticism uh, as well. So you kind of have to go that extra mile to build that trust and really be transparent and show the goals and the steps that are being taken uh, to get there. And that's at least what we see that consumers are asking for, but also then that our customers, the brands, owners that we work with are, are searching for that as well. So we're doing all that we can. And I think when it comes always to communicating with consumers, they expect to be able to trust you. So you have to always be honest. Huh? And I think that that's something that's always there. And I think 
make sure that we all do it and that all the brands do it throughout everything so that that trust can be built because consumers at the end of the day, they can see through everything and they expect um, that you can deliver what they want, which is to help them, especially after all of the trouble that we've all been through over the last few years. So I think uh, clearly articulating what uh, their products can do to help them is key. One other aspect before I just finish that scientific proof is also really important. Uh, so in this transparency as well and health claims, consumers are much more astute about what they are taking because they're much more educated now within the last few years about health and nutrition. So making sure that scientifically backed ingredients are, are there is really crucial because they can distinguish this uh, in the market too. So just again, in short, transparency and authenticity will help. People are, seem to be squeezed for money now because inflation's pushing the prices of everything up. Do you think that when it comes to health products and, and things that are important in making you feel well or feel in the healthy aging, as you just mentioned, do you think that people are still looking for that to be economical? Or do you think that because it's health related that they're prepared to pay a premium in order to be more well? It's a good question. I think there's no simple answer. I think in general, people will pay a bit more if they can trust that the product is going to do what it says that it's going to do. So I think that that's key. But I think there are people, parts of the population everywhere around the world that struggle then with being able to with purchase power in some cases. So you need to make sure then that the quality of all products, so normal food, so not supplements or not all of that, the balance between the normal daily nutrition and intake in the diet and making sure that people are educated about that and being able to do it and then making sure that they have access and availability to other products that can even further help to support their body and their mind as well. Do you think that's one of the keys in the future is to be able to develop sort of staple products we take supplements now and they might be expensive, yeah. but do you think that maybe we're getting into a place where your milk has things added to it or your bread has things added to it To No, I think that's a good, that, yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's been happening to an extent for a number of years. Uh? So, so food fortification has always been something. Folic acid is a good one. Uh? So what about 20, 30 years ago, was big debates, folic acid can help with development of the baby in the womb. Uh? But because it's so important, then they did fortify some flour with it. We see it happening already a lot. And I think that's just the standardization. But there will always be a market for the more higher end and people who want to spend a bit more to really boost their own health or maintain their health um, for the short and for the for the long term. And from what we've just been talking about, and also from the report itself, it's clear that it's not a very straightforward thing to navigate if you're a company that produces products for this field. How do you as a company help your customers cut through all of that to get to the end consumer? That's also a good question. So I think we are always bringing the latest insights and the latest trends. I think that's most important so that they can understand yeah, what the consumer is looking for and how they are also perceiving the current market or the dynamics that are going on there so what they're going out to purchase and what it means for them so our goal overall is to support our customers so that they can have the best quality of products that deliver what they say on pack that's going to deliver and quality behind of that 
In addition, we always are focused on the scientific benefits of our ingredients and the end products that can be produced with those. So we also have a lot of formulation expertise. So we will support our customers and partners along the development process and the innovation process in their own factories or in their own um, locations to be able to uh, deliver the solutions for the consumer. So we have a lot of technical knowledge. We do that too. And then we always make sure that when we're, for example, creating or making a new ingredient as well, we will always validate that ingredient, not only from the scientific point of view, but from the applications, as we call the end product. So we will always make prototypes. We will make sure that our product can work in certain formats. Can you make a a protein shake from it? Can you make a yogurt from it? Can you make a, a, a bar or a dietary supplement specifically from this? So we will always make them as well. So create the prototypes of them to showcase what can be done. And then that combination, I think, of all of those things is what we can do to really help our customers to navigate this, but also bring really much needed um, products to the market. So those that the solution that will work and that the consumers really want. I was thinking about you, you mentioned about the fortification of things as well and ingredients. So mainstream products more like yogurts and milk are including more functional ingredients. So not just the vitamins and minerals that we have had for a long time. But you can buy in some countries in the world, for example, prebiotic milk now. So milk that has added prebiotics or, or other things. So it's developing and that's one area we're, we're, we're looking at as well. Yeah. Speaking of which, what kind of new products are you anticipating or are you helping with in the next little while? We have lots of ideas, of course. Yeah, but I think um, what we see linked to the trends that, that we just talked to you about, there will be a lot of different uh, products and formula combinations that will come to the market, which will deliver on those. Protein is always going to be very important. Yeah, I think it's become mainstream now in terms of people's awareness of that it is important for your health, for your body to maintain strong. So we particularly are looking at, of course, dairy based, which is our stronghold, the new area of plant based, which is also for us our hybrid solutions. So that's one. I think in line with the gut health, prebiotics, probiotics, there's still a huge trend um, and an area where we expect a lot more innovation and new products um, in that area and the combinations of pre and probiotics for symbiotics. Yeah? And I think that's that's a bit on the ingredient side, but I think that format is also very important. Uh? So you see that there was a big shift a few years ago into more convenient formats for people when they were on the go, especially when people were traveling around. That did not change even much during the lockdown period that we had. Uh, so people are still looking for very convenient formats, uh, ready to drinks, yogurts, things that they can eat uh, in small portions even. So we take care of that as well. So we're really lo- looking at the formats of the future uh, product types as well. And then last but not least, but combining the consumer needs together into nice tasting products. Huh? So everybody wants something that tastes good and is healthy for them. It's not always so easy when you want uh, maybe something that tastes a little bit like chocolate, but has uh, a lot of protein in it. But we look at those trends where people are like, we call it healthy indulgence. Huh? So looking at how do you deliver on something that still tastes really good, maybe a little bit indulgent, but will give the health benefits that people are looking for. And health benefits is the future direction. So everybody is focused on their own health and well-being and that of their family and friends. How to deliver that is where we will also be focusing on. So gut, strength, immunity and even mental well-being. (laughs) 
one thing that is often in short supply around the world is fresh water. So when a company sends along information about new technology for homogenizers that can reduce water consumption by up to 97%, then I'm interested, and I think everybody listening probably would be too. That technology is the Homogenizer Water Recycling System, or HWRS, from SPX Flow. And to give us the details is Con O'Driscoll, Product Manager for Homogenizers at SPX Flow. I wonder if you could tell me a bit about water homogenizers and what typically the role of them is in the dairy industry. The homogenizer was invented for the dairy industry more than 100 years ago now. And its job is to do that, to homogenize, to disperse the milk. Because without homogenization, the fat will stay coagulated and you'll see the cream line that you get in traditional unhomogenized milk. So the homogenizer is a key piece of equipment to give you the fat stability and the longer shelf life. And it's been part of the dairy industry for, well, since its invention, as I say. And how much water do they, I mean, obviously it depends on the company and the size, but how much water do they typically use? And you're absolutely right. It depends on a number of things. The size of the homogenizer or the line that the homogenizer is running on, the actual running hours and the age of the homogenizer as well. But to give an idea, and we're talking for the most part here about your modern larger plants running more or less continuously. So if you've got a line that's running a high-capacity milk homogenization and pasteurizing line, you could be using somewhere between 2,500 to 7,000 meters cubed of water per year, up to 2 million gallons a year, depending on those factors. So a lot of things influencing it, but what's clear is it is a lot of water and it's often an overlooked water consumption within the dairy. Is that just because it's one of those things that you just have to do it so you don't really think about it? Exactly. People don't think it needs to be done. It serves the function of lubricating the homogenizer and also cooling the, the transmission, cooling the oil in the transmission so that it continues to run all day long without overheating. And um, it just does its thing quietly. And I guess in the past, particularly, people accepted that that's how it's done and the water was part of that. But it's not always visible how much water has been consumed, like many areas of water consumption in a dairy. And before the HWRS that you've developed, what typically would happen to that water? For most dairies, it's particularly older lines. It's going down the drain and then it's collected. It might go through a pre-treatment plant, but typically it's going into the, the overall disposal line for the dairy. So then you're not only paying for the water, at process quality water as well, but you're also then paying for the disposal at whatever the local utility rates are. On some of the modern plants, the larger plants, there is some water collection and reuse, so perhaps using it for a secondary purpose for pre-rinsing or external cleaning and things like that. But for the most part, the water is used once and then disposed. You've just developed the HWRS. Could you tell me a bit about developing that and how you approached it? Yeah, of course. So I guess it starts with listening to customers and seeing needs. And you have a sort of a convergence of needs because processors are always looking to reduce their input costs. It's, it's part of life, part of running a business. And then you overlay with that some of the sustainability goals that companies have for many reasons, not just for sustainability credentials, but obviously to save on resources and to save cost. 
And in the past, water consumption in general wasn't so much looked at. It wasn't considered a limited resource, either in availability or in cost or, or in terms of sustainability and responsibility to resources. The other factor, I guess, is that control systems were less developed and sensors were less prominent in, in some areas. So taking all of that into account, I suppose the other thing is you, when you're at home, you see a dripping tap or you see water, you see do something about it. It's not always visible, as we said, on in a factory. So that's how we looked at what could we do to think differently in terms of how could you collect the water and reuse it. Then you start to think about the integrity of the water, making sure that it's filtered, cleaned and suitable for reuse. And then finally, you overlay that with the necessary controls, alarms, protections. So bringing all that together, that's when the idea was developed. It takes some time, of course, but it's really taking those needs and how the visibility of water consumption has increased and starts to align as well with overall sustainability goals, whether it's energy or water. It all comes together and the two match up pretty well. And how long did it take? from sort of idea to launch? Yeah, it's a good question. And as you, you'll probably know, new product developments can take a reasonable amount of time. So we're talking a number of years from initial conversations and concepts, design iterations, uh, and then, of course, validation and improve and then do field testing and, and show that the integrity of the system to do its job day in, day out without intervention is seamless. So it, it does take a number of years. It depends, the, the whole cycle will really depends on the complexity. And this is a reasonably complex solution because if it were easy, it would have been done probably some years ago. So we had to consider what factors would make this a success. How does it actually work? Okay, yeah. So it's basically a, a retrofit device when we talk about existing dairies. And it consists of a couple of small stainless steel skids which sit next to the homogenizer to collect the water, the first one. And the second one can sit nearby or further away. That's what's doing the water treatment, essentially. And the tank next to the homogenizer is picking up on the discharge streams of the water, which are happening continuously on an homogenizer running on a dairy process line. And as it's collected, it's monitored, looking for any impurities or anything that might have caused the water to be unsuitable for recirculation and recycling. So, for example, if the homogenizer packings and seals have reached the end of their life, you might have some leakage coming through. And at that point, we wouldn't consider that water suitable for recycling and you get an alarm. That water is then pumped to what we call a sanitation skid. And there it's filtered, monitored, sanitized and then cooled to whatever temperature you need back into the homogenizer and then it's pumped back to the homogenizer inputs that you have on your regular homogenizer today and all of that's happening fully automatically and importantly with fail-safe controls so that you don't have to worry about if you get an alarm is it going to stop your line or your homogenizer so it'll simply kick in the regular water supply if there's any interruption to the actual recycling system itself. So in summary, it's taking the existing water supply and instead of being a single use, it's putting that in a closed loop recycle system with the necessary monitoring and controls to make sure that the water is maintained at the water quality. In the US, we talk about PMO category one water quality 
which is maintained. And, and all of that is giving you talk about the volumes of water before running on a 97% target recycling rate. The only difference for the 3% is startups and back flushes and various steps that are taken. And that's happening continuously, seamlessly with your line. What sort of benefits would a dairy company see from installing an HWRS? So the first one, obviously, is water saving. You know, once this unit is in, you're going to continue saving water day in, day out. And with that, because you're not consuming water, then you can look at a cost saving both for the incoming water and for the water disposal costs, whether in your own pretreatment or when you actually discharge it and you have the local authority or, or whoever is taking care of that. I guess the other side is once you start saving water and many plants, particularly in, in water stressed areas, might have some sort of cap or limitation on their water use permits or availability. So you can either take the saving or you can think about what else could you do with that water? Could you do more with some other assets? Could you expand maybe in a way that you were more limited with before? So there's a number of things that can be done, but primarily it's saving water, saving money. And over the top of all that, I suppose, if you have particular sustainability goals, then it's helping you to reach those on the water front. And often when a new piece of equipment comes out, getting it to actually work with an existing system can sometimes be an issue. How easy is it to install and to use? Yeah, that's of course a concern. And um, so I would say overall, it's pretty simple. It's designed with its own controls so that it takes care of its own operation and the integrity of the recycling operation is on board. At the same time, it can communicate with the plant control system, of course. But what we look to do is to do a survey of the existing line to understand the running hours, the space available, the hookup points for the services. And then we would know which model and which configurations to use. And because the units are compact, they tend to sit pretty neatly in the typical process room environments. The piping and controls and wiring connections are standard dairy for the dairy sector. So overall, we've designed it to be plug and play in terms of being easy to integrate on, on an existing line. And so you said there are different models, so that would be for different configurations, I guess? Different models for different configurations. And for example, you can hook up two homogenizers to one unit if the homogenizers are close together, or you might have different capacities. And they're relatively easy to use once they're installed. They're integrated. The controls, as I say, are built in and the alarms and communications are standard. And in terms of maintenance, it's like any other piece of equipment in the dairy. Normal things that you need to do, take care of things like filter changes and occasionally calibrate your sensors. As you mentioned at the beginning there, there's not really any two dairies that are alike, but what kind of savings can companies achieve? Absolutely, the savings will depend on the circumstances, but a good way to look at it is if we can save up to 97% of the water that's been consumed on the homogenizer, so think of how much water you're consuming and how much that costs you, both in terms of supply and disposal, then you know you can look at your own costs and your own situation and it starts to add up to substantial sums of money if you're talking about these thousands of meters cubed an hour of water every year. 
And then I guess there's the sustainability credentials as well. It must help with that. Absolutely. And and I think we, I'm, I'm sort of intentionally talking about sustainability as the following benefit, because this is first and foremost, it's helping you with the water savings and running your line more efficiently. But of course, with so many companies now publicly declaring their sustainability plans, this is a really good supporting tool to help with that. A lot of focus, of course, is on energy, but all resources are, especially where there's heavy use of water in sectors like dairy and beverage, all of these things absolutely help with that. And is this something that's available globally? So we've launched it initially in the US market, and then we'll be planning the launch in the rest of the world through this year. So that will be coming soon. Obviously, it's been tested in plants. What's the reaction been like to it where it's been used already? The reaction's been very positive. As part of the development process, of course, we looked at improving and matching needs to make sure that uh, not only for the actual core function, but the communication, the maintenance schedules. But the reaction has been very good. And I think the best endorsement is the sort of comments that I get saying that it's just there, it's doing its job and we don't have to worry about it. And that's why the integrity of the controls and the operation is so important. People don't want to introduce something that might in any way risk the operation and the continuity of the line, particularly in the modern environments where there isn't, you know, you don't tend to have a lot of shutdown time. There aren't spare lines generally. You're running the lines for as long as you can. And of course, this isn't the only piece of equipment that you produce for dairies, um, and especially in water reduction and sustainability. What other kind of solutions do you have in that area? That's right. And um, in the dairy sector and you know my own areas with homogenizers particularly, there's been a lot of focus on energy, energy savings, for example, using newer homogenizing valves, which can save with multiple gap homogenizing valve with, with savings of up to 25% compared to traditional ones or using partial homogenization, essentially homogenizing part of the stream rather than full stream and blending it back together. That's some techniques that have been in use for a number of years. More generally, we've looked at hygienic pigging systems for more viscous products and recovering products or so saving in that way. And we're also getting more and more requests now for the IE4 motors, so increasing the energy efficiency on the motors. And all of these incremental improvements will, of course, help the overall footprint of any given plant. On top of that, when you think about solutions as a whole and controls and automation, the controls team within the business is capable of automating better changeovers, better product recovery, optimized cleaning, and all of these things add up to the whole picture. And more traditional products such as plate heat exchangers and improving the energy efficiency of the individual designs. It's no one thing. It's a combination of things that can improve either through new equipment, retrofit or controls on top. And it all comes together to give those sustainable solutions. And all of the equipment that you mentioned and the new equipment, is that something that once you've developed it, that's the end of it and you move on to something else? Or are you sort of tweaking equipment as you go always tweaking yeah so for example you know we follow the standards as well the ie4 motors for example those standards are changing and ie5 will be coming down the pipe some point in the next few years and the designs of things like homogenizing valves and heat exchanger plates and those areas which are energy consumers 
they're incrementally improved over the years as we learn more, as we get more field experience, or as we can do better modeling. So it's, it's not a, a one stop, it's a continuous thing. And the nice thing is, I think that many customers are looking for those improvements and looking to invest in improvements. So, you know, we're happy to help them and work with them. I think there are very few really big step changes, but with incremental changes, whether it's on water, energy, you can really over time make improvements in your plant. And how often do you come out with new equipment in this area? Or is it just as and when you have something? That's basically it. And sometimes it's more introduced in a, in a softer way in the sense that we make some improvement that will help on specific applications or installations. So there's no one schedule on that. We obviously also follow the regulatory environment where things change, such as on various standards. So we try to bring things out as often as we can. The water saving device is the most recent. Last year, we also launched the updated hygienic pigging system that I mentioned. The other thing, I suppose, some of our customers are also turning the table a little bit, not only what we can do for them, but how we conduct ourselves in our own factories, because that's part of their sustainability auditing. So in our manufacturing locations, we are focused on energy and waste particularly. And things like LED lighting and waste reduction, packaging reduction are very important areas. And that's an ongoing piece of work to try to get better at how we do these things in the same way that our customers do in what they do, whether it's energy or water or waste. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland over at StoneX. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Jim. Um, well, what a difference a week makes. Um, I, I don't think sitting last week anyone expected us to be uh, where we are today and uh, what devastating developments are happening over in the Ukraine. Um, but I guess it's obviously causing obviously major humanitarian issues, but also it's having now a, a knock-on effect to virtually every commodity market. And um, dairy, while it's been one of the, I guess, least impacted in the short term, it's certainly uh, still starting to feel some some impacts. We, I think you see all the headlines, We uh, energy prices have been dramatically impacted by what's been going on, uh, with Brent hitting above $110 a barrel today. Uh, wheat prices also, grain prices up significantly, um, wheat up, up over 20% in, in some contracts. Obviously, this is going to have a pretty major impact medium term on uh, dairy markets. Um, you know, we've we were kind of looking in recently at our kind of forecast and analysis, and we we're looking at farmer margins uh, across the world starting to look quite healthy. Um, and as a result, that we were forecasting in that we would start to see some supply response as a result of that. Obviously, with these input costs increasing rapidly due to the uh, the situation in the Ukraine. That starts to probably impact our outlook a little bit. Um, I, I think even though farmer margins with the high milk prices that are that are coming down the road in the coming months should still be quite strong, even with these higher costs, they should still be profitable. There's probably going to be an impact on on sentiment at the very least, uh, which will probably curtail some of the additional milk production we would have been expecting or forecasting. The market has reacted a little bit in the commodity side as well. Um, maybe not as much as, well, certainly not as much as we've seen in some of the other um, more directly related products. But we did have a GDT auction yesterday, which was uh, quite strong, up 5.1% on average. 
and pretty much strong across the board. I mean, cheese was very strong. Um, butter was up 5.9%. Whole milk powder, the main benchmark contract, was up about 5.7% on average. And it, uh, you know, there's a, it was kind of as, uh, as expected. Um, I'm not sure too much of that was due to the situation developing in the Ukraine. I think it was more to do with the fact that, um, you know, milk collections continue to be quite weak in New Zealand. There was published prices there recently in January showing milk collections down 6.1%. And as a result, uh, Fonterra had, uh, started to remove some volumes off the GDT auction or going to start moving some off in the coming uh, events. For example, Homa Powder, they're going to drop about 5,000 tonnes off the auction between March and May. Similar in Skim Milk Powder, another 5,000 tonnes been dropped off there as well. So this is, is starting to impact, I guess, people's view and outlook uh, as to what's going to happen in this market. And, and I think, if anything, everything is looking kind of bullish at the moment. We're seeing similar spillover into into Europe. Um, the quotations are just released here this morning and they've been up again. We do see quite big disparities in prices around uh, around Europe and around the globe. Um, I mean, butter prices at the moment in Europe are certainly above 6,100 euros per tonne in the short term, which is very high, especially when you compare it with skim milk powder prices, which are getting close to 3,800 euros per tonne. Um, there is still discounts out the forward curve, as there is some expectation that uh, demand will be hit at these high levels. But that those forward curves have been flattening a little bit, so the discount is not as steep as it once was. In general, there's a lot of head scratching as to as to how the markets are going to develop over the coming period. Um, you know, there the certainly medium term there is going to be some bullish um, fallout from what's happening in in the Ukraine in terms of the dairy markets, but short term there should be some signals i mean if you look specifically at cheese and butter they do ukraine does historically import uh, reasonable quantities there uh, so there should be some uh, some additional product finding its way into the market which could be seen as a possible uh, bearish sign but uh, in general markets are uh, have been moving up and are feeling quite firm great thanks a lot charlie a good in-depth look there and uh, yeah definitely crazy times indeed hopefully Better news next week, and we'll talk to you next week. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another podcast. Let's hope next week we have some better news. I do have interviews done for the next week already, so that's a positive, as is getting all of those videos done. And so, I hope wherever in the world you may be that you have a great week, take care, stay safe, and send some positive energy along to those affected by the war in Europe, which I never thought that I'd be saying in 2022. And, as always, thanks for listening.